Can I bend your ear a minute? Let's change the subject. Didn't know you belonged here. Many of whom will not be enjoying ribs this afternoon. This is why I don't have a TV. I don't know why I never brought him up. It goes along for a while, and then it takes a turn and ends up exactly where you thought it was going. But wait, there's more. I have $150. We had an interesting idea. You're in their country. Learn to speak the language. It's about how they want to be seen by us. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015, gearing our conversation around the conversation the show is having, mostly about, well, mirrors, mirrors, and the mirrors of mirrors. Now, of course, I have somebody here who... He, he's an impressive person, and legend has it that he currently has $150. It's Will Ashton. Hello. Unfortunately, there is a podcaster who won't be enjoying Mad Men Men with us uh, or eating ribs, and that is Mike Overholz. Uh, he, was, he wasn't able to record with us today, but he sends his, uh, his best regards. And so uh, for now, Will Ashton, if you could step up, get, stand up, and we'll all applaud you while you look uncomfortable. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. I don't <laughs> really like uh, public displays of affection, so that would be a very uncomfortable moment for me if I was in Dawn's uh, shoes. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're being clapped for like something you didn't really do or like a situation in which you accidentally killed someone <laughs> um but you know uh to each their own tour of duty i suppose so will we're talking about another episode of Mad men mm. we are almost halfway through season two yeah uh checking in um you weren't and you weren't here for uh last week's episode right or I, maybe am i mixing that up were you here i think i was here the only one i've missed so far as the i can girl? recall is flight one okay so we did talk about the new girl. I thought I was there for it. I could be wrong. Well, but... it's tough because I edit these episodes, and so I have it in my head that it was just me and Mike. But I might just be thinking of Flight One. So I was going to say, that I know could be the situation at the time we are recording this. <clears throat> excuse me, we're recording this episode that it is uh, just out, and you just worked on it as an editor. So that's probably why it is fresh on your mind. Prop, yeah, probably. I I am vaguely starting to remember now. Uh, it was the three of us because we were talking about the ratings and everything that you and I had talked about the week before. So, okay. Yes. Will, um, you were there. I even, I actually, you know what? I do remember because we all said, uh, around the podcast table, uh, why will Ashton can't have salt because we love him. But, uh, yeah, that lie aside, Will, uh, how are you feeling about season two at this point? Now that we're about halfway, a lot has happened. We're still kind of in a mode, right, of uh, some more setup building upon previous episodes. But where are you at? I feel like um, similar to last week. I don't know if I really talked about this a lot. Um, with this season, I feel like when I watch the episodes, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying them fine, but they don't hit me as hard as first season does. But when I reflect on them and read about these episodes, I tend to respect them a little bit more. I still I think I'm keener on the first season overall, at least at this point. But I think I admire the richness that kind of goes into them and the fact they're making some kind of bold and uncompromising choices this time around. Not that they didn't the first season, but I feel like 
you can tell that Weiner and company are a little bit more emboldened, willing to make some kind of uh, risky and challenging decisions for the characters that they've just established. And yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely stuff to appreciate and admire here. And we're going to talk about this episode pretty soon. But yeah, I'm a fan of season two, but I can see why this one uh, doesn't live up to the first season in your view. Right. I've said it too many times to count at this point that I've always been pretty low on season two. It's probably my least favorite season. And I've been reluctant to say it's my least favorite because I have a feeling that as we, because we're slowed down and we're not just binging these episodes that I might notice things maybe in season three and four that I didn't before. Cause those ones I binged and I didn't start watching the show weekly until season. Uh, actually I did start watching weekly in season uh, four but not the whole thing. And then I've been part of it. You know, I kind of went back and forth because it was a busy time for me. But anyway, Maiden Form is such an interesting episode. Now, this one was directed by Phil Abraham. He uh, is brought back because, I mean, he's been a DP for the show, I believe, um, for a bunch of episodes. But I believe this is his first time uh, nope. directing since The Hobo Code. Uh, um, no, it's I thought, been a while. Didn't he direct uh, Flight 1? Uh, no, Flight One was directed by Andrew Bernstein, but I think he did work on Flight One. Oh, I wait, don't, I don't wait, th- okay. Does Andrew Bernstein do the next one? Yes. Okay, that's uh, what Andrew I'm Bernstein did the, uh, the Gold Violin, which we'll talk about uh, next okay, week. Okay, okay, that's where I'm getting confused. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, Phil Abraham, uh, I think he worked, did he work on some Soprano stuff too, or am yes. I making that up? He completely? was the okay. main cinematographer for Sopranos, and he directed one episode, right. uh, in the final season for Sopranos, and then he, I think he directed at least one episode in season one but he was the main cinematographer for the season i know he was the, the cinematographer for the pilot at the very least so yes he definitely has uh, a heavy hand in sopranos and in Mad Men. this is the first Mad Men episode i don't know if we get another one like this where it's directed by phil abraham and written by matthew weiner we might get that at some point later i'd have to double check but uh, and at the very least, they, if we do, I think it's one of the situations, many situations where Matthew Weiner co-writes. Uh, we don't have a ton of episodes of Mad Men where Matthew Weiner writes by himself. Um, actually, I'm going to take a look because I, I have a feeling there is one more episode like that, but I want to like fact check it first. In the meantime, yes, this is another Matthew Weiner episode. Uh, he has not been the sole credited writer of an, a Mad Men episode since the first episode of this season, I want to say, uh, which was for those who think young. Uh, he also on, directed, or sorry, directed. He also wrote uh, several episodes of last season by himself, but for more in the first half of the season, the pilot, obviously, and then the episode right after, and then he did 5G. So we're getting to the point in the show where Matthew Weiner is writing less and less uh, solely, and he's more putting uh, a lot of other writers in the room with him. Uh, we're going to see that even more going through the rest of the series, because like, I, I want to, if I remember correctly, the uh, season three is one of the seasons where he barely writes, um, especially by himself. But uh, all that said, I love seeing Matthew Weiner as the writer here uh, every time he shows up in the credits, because, you know, it's his show. And he always has such a particular stamp on the series. And okay, I just brought it up. And he does have one more soul writing credit uh, on this season. And that is the Jet Set, uh, which is episode 11. And uh, Jet Set is a, an interesting one to be sure. Uh, but anyway, maiden form. Will, would it surprise you to learn? I don't know if you might have noticed this if you were reading up on the episode after you watched it. Would it surprise you to know that this is certainly one of the more... Um, controversial Mad Men episodes among fans. Some people really, really, really love it and consider it one of their favorites. Some people do not. 
And Matthew Weiner himself has said this is his favorite episode of the series. Of the series? Yes. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you sound surprised. <laughs> I mean. But it, 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 is, it is contentious. Because there are a lot of people who are like, you know what? This is not one of the better episodes. Uh, people have issues with this episode. Did he detail why he considers this one his favorite? Or is he just kind of like, it's my favorite just because? Um, if I remember right, so he said this in an interview, and if I if I recall, it has a lot to do with the way that he was able to tie everybody's stories together. He's really proud of, and a lot of the symbolism in here, he he thinks sum up a lot of the series. I think one of Matthew Weiner's favorite things to do with writing in general, but especially with this show, is taking characters who are unsympathetic, characters who are just. It, it's so easy to see them in like Pete Campbell, you know. Um, and and kind of peel back the layers of who they are and really dig deeper into w- what would make them sort of human, you know? And he loves taking characters that are kind of archetypal at first glance and then having the audience kind of just continuously question and reevaluate who these characters are. And I think he really likes this episode because there are all those moments where a character will literally just like look in the mirror and be asking themselves that question of like, who am I really? You know, it's that kind of thing that I think he puts a lot of care and attention into this episode in particular. And I think it's quite well done. But uh, yeah, I I think that's basically sums it up. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think in a broad sense, this episode really tackles a lot of things that from what well, from where I stand, at least as a, a newbie to the series that he likes to really explore, which is like these ideas of like, as you're mentioning, characters trying to define themselves in society, kind of figuring out what roles they play, how they can fit into those roles, who they are as these people. Like, can they really be this one thing or the other, especially in terms of um, how their work life defines their personal lives? And I think that is kind of a brilliant touch with this episode where it takes place um, primarily on Memorial Day, which is supposed to be a day that everyone's supposed to be off. And we've seen before where like their personal lives and their uh, their work lives have been kind of intersecting. Certainly that one episode earlier this season where everyone's in their like uh, Labor Day attire, not Labor Day, I forget. Is it uh, like they're kind of summary attire? Memorial, Memorial Day. Day. Okay. Wait, I thought this was Memorial Day. Did I get a mix up? Oh, you're talking about the other episode. Okay. When they were on, like, it was like three Sundays. Yeah, okay. It was like Easter. Okay, that's Easter. Okay, yeah, that's right. So okay. this is Memorial Day. Um, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's the whole reason why they have that uh, tribute to the, the veterans at the country club. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, no, it's like the, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't really tackle these ideas in a new way it's compared to like what we have seen from the show already, but I think... Uh, from a wider standpoint, it is done in a fairly neat way, but also not skirting past the complexities of the characters and allowing some to be sympathetic and unsympathetic and like uh, just a scene by scene basis. And, you know, really kind of getting into the nitty gritty of who these characters are while letting them let it while letting them feel fleshed out and difficult, but also compelling and uh, nuanced. So I can I, I think I can sympathize with why he puts this one so high on his own ranking, but I wouldn't say it's a personal favorite of mine. Yeah, it's not a personal favorite of mine, but I will say I appreciate it now more than I ever have. It was one of those episodes where I I never gave it that much attention because it's the kind of Mad Men episode where it's mostly a lot of inconsequential or seemingly inconsequential moments that are strung together. And it's really just built on character. It's not really built on plot. Because the plot here, 
ultimately it, it's it's almost purposefully anticlimactic right there's the big maiden form or not maiden form pitch but playtex pitch that is obviously trying to mirror maiden form and that doesn't really go anywhere it's it, it's sort of like oh it's not rejected or accepted it's just sort of like oh yeah we decided we're not gonna do it anyway it's very anticlimactic right that sums up a lot of this episode well, a lot of things just happen but there isn't a lot of and now things are different it's almost episodic in that yeah way. But also, I mean, just by the nature of it being about uh, a brazier, it's kind of tying into the idea that like these this very private thing is becoming public, or this idea that like something that's meant to be very intimate and very personal is their business. And then also, well, like, that's how, why yeah. the maiden form campaign, which is a real ad campaign, mm-hmm. was built upon dreams right. and imagination because it was taking this private thing, this sort of like. You know, we don't really talk about brassiers. There's even that moment where Freddie Rumson is sort of like, we're going to need another box of brassiers, like right in front of Duck's kids. Uh, there's all that whole moment. The the dream and imagination of that concept is what made that ad campaign so successful because it was such a new novel, you know, way to approach that type of thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. I thought that was a clever touch, something that I can certainly admire from this episode. Yeah, you know, I, I can always tell... An episode of Mad Men kind of has my brain really working when I have a ton of notes on the episode. And I really like some episodes where I don't have a lot of notes. I'm just really like so immersed in it. I'm not thinking to take notes. This is a different one. This is one where I'm constantly watching it. And as usual, I watched it twice. And the second time I'm pausing it constantly because I'm just like, there's that too. There's that too. So you mentioned uh, the nitty gritty. Let's get into the nitty gritty of the episode. So... Ultimately, I think this is an episode that's about, uh, at least it kicks off, being about how men see women. There, there's a lot in this episode of like the Freudian concept of, you know, men seeing women as either a Madonna or a whore. Uh, I don't, I've, I think whore was like the, the term he used, but this idea of like a, like a saint or a mother, you know, a Jackie Kennedy, <laughs> you know, somebody who's more, some, you know, prim and proper, you know, uh, elegant, grace. Um, and then somebody who's a little bit more fun and flirty and, you know, like Marilyn Monroe. And this episode is, is kind of like the fantasy of men wanting women to essentially be both. And as we watch this episode unfold, we see that ultimately somebody like Don Draper tries to separate the two. And I've never noticed this until watching this episode now because we pause and we talk about it every week, I'm starting to put a couple things together that I hadn't before, which is that I think this episode really is getting at Don being Don and Pete and Duck essentially being three men who they themselves can be separated into the two flavors. And I think that episode is more about like, it's not about women being Jackie or Marilyn. It's about men being one of two different things. And I think the episode's getting at how Don and Pete essentially are like, I don't want to say Jackie and Marilyn, but the, it's going back to the Nixon Kennedy thing here. There's even yes. some like references, right? To well, the Kennedy himself, the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say not only in terms of referencing the Bay of Pigs, but the ad campaign is essentially putting anyone that watches the ad in the role of Kennedy. Cause obviously, you know, mm-hmm. not only he is he married to Jackie Kennedy, but he had the famous affair with Marilyn Monroe. So it's the idea of like, you know, sort of objectifying women in the eyes of Kennedy. And being like, you can be like the kind of Kennedy and admire, you know, not putting women's agency in front, but rather like, you know, viewing each woman as like one of two lovers in the president's life. Yes, exactly. He is being a Nixon when he gets all Puritan with Betty, 
when he tries to discipline Betty as like, you're the mother of my children. You are not Marilyn. You know, don't wear that skimpy swimsuit. He's being a Nixon, right? Instead of a Kennedy. And there's something to be said, too, of like the, the season has referenced at least once, if not multiple times, the idea of Kennedy chasing women, you know, uh, specifically Kennedy, you know, having not just Jackie, uh, his wife, but also like alleged affairs with Marilyn Monroe, that sort of thing, right? So it, again, it's one of those things where it's kind of like you said, when you're watching the episode, it's sort of like, huh, that's interesting. But then it's like, once you've watched it like afterward and you start to like really think about it, and then of course, like maybe look into what other people have to say, it all kind of starts to click into place. And there's there's so much to admire there of what Weiner is doing. Yeah, and then also, I mean, the idea of like, Something I find fascinating here, especially for a show that's taking place very crucially in this time in the early 60s, is looking at the Kennedy campaign in terms of like he kind of sold this bill of goods as far as like he's going to change things up and radicalize it. And then, like you said, there's a Bay of Pigs incident, and that's like kind of like one of his biggest like follies in the presidential campaign and something where he wasn't really able, like he kind of feels that he's like failing to live up to his personal promises. And that's kind of a fascinating thing to explore at this point in the series, I think. You know what's funny, though? Uh, history shows us that when that happened, Kennedy's approval went up. And I think this episode also alludes to that a little bit as well when Don sort of says everybody's happy. And I mean, part of that was because people were very anti-communist. They were very anti-Fidel Castro. And so it, w- it wasn't the kind of thing that would sink JFK. But there are a lot of historians who say that if it wasn't for Kennedy's assassination, there probably would have been a lot more backlash to his presidency well, that he yeah. never really received in the decades following, right? Like, were people really being honest about the Bay of Pig situation, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and how all those situations went down? A lot of it sort of gets overlooked or diminished or downplayed, I should say, because ultimately he was assassinated and people remember that. Yeah, I was going to say it because I mean, spoilers for <laughs> spoilers for real life. And I'm sure spoilers <laughs> yeah. for Mad Men, too. I have to imagine they're going to discuss the Kennedy assassination at some point. So uh, spoilers, if you didn't know about that and you're watching a show uh, new like me. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, no, I was going to say because I, I do think that uh, when we look at the Kennedy uh, presidency, it is kind of romanticized and uh, turned deeply tragic, obviously, because of the assassination. But yeah, just that's what I mean. I, I appreciate that it's able to kind of look at the messiness of the Kennedy campaign at this very specific time and feel appropriate in a way that something that I think is very true to Mad Men, which is like it can be nostalgic, but also just have a hardened look at what this time was and just kind of, you know, rationalize that uh, as the characters are living it at this moment and in this time. Totally agree. There, there's another running thing through this episode where uh, multiple times we see men seeing women and viewing them a certain way, viewing them as like a sexual object of desire, right? Arthur sees Betty at the country club and, you know, goes on to flirt with her. Later, Don, you know, is trying to get it on with uh, Bobby, uh, you know, over the phone. But then the mention of children comes up, right? The kids literally run up to Betty and like, mommy, mommy. And then Arthur notice notably, noticeably and notably looks extremely uncomfortable because at this point he notices that she has kids. And there's the running thing where Don is unable to really like combine the two, look at Betty as somebody who is 
someone he can have this romantic like get his like romantic you know frustrations out on that he's been having uh he can he can do that with her she wants to be that for him but he just sees her as the mother of his kids it's a toxic thing that he's carried on since season one we've we've as we've watched right where he constantly is like looking at her not as uh somebody who is fun somebody who is his equal, somebody who can challenge him. He just constantly sees her. He, he says that thing to her, right? In that one episode where he's like, I wish I could have had a mother as, as great as you, right? In the episode shoot. And that's something that obviously rankles Betty because she's, she's like, I'm more than a mother. I'm more than a housewife. And I think that's part of why it's surprising to Arthur that she has kids. She doesn't talk about her kids, right? At the, at the horse club stuff. Like she mentions the kids to like that lady, but uh, Sarah Beth Carson, but she doesn't, you know what I mean? Like when she goes there, she's not a mother. She's suddenly like living this vicarious life of, you know, being single in her twenties again. Right. So I, I just find it all so fascinating. I actually, I think at this point she might be 30 or about to be 30. But no, I think she's still in her twenties or at least like she's like around my age, right? She's, she's 28 in season one, okay. which is like the spring. Yeah. And then, so that means she would have been 29 in season two. I think she's like just turned 30 in the show's time okay because we're in memorial day so we're at the end of spring gotcha. so my best guess is that she's 30 but like newly 30 but yeah no I, I definitely agree in the sense that like obviously with the whole brazier campaign they're you know obviously selling women as like an object of desire and they're sexualizing them and choosing uh deliberately to not look at the complexities of their lives and certainly the show is trying to like with all the main female characters that become the focus here uh you know choosing this to show like how they have these like complexities that men actively avoid or feel sort of disgusted by certainly with like Arthur, you know, not wanting to see, like you said, Betty as uh, a mother and someone who has a life outside of the horse uh, ranch. But also, yeah, like we see later with Bobby where she has two kids, like two adult children, like early, exactly. Yeah. Early adult. She brings it up. Yeah. Don is immediately like, well, there goes my boner. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's it's a little twofold there, yeah, because it's not only that, but then the fact that uh, he can't really have power over the relationship because um, right, he he there's he's hearing. I don't know if it's true for or not from Bobby, or if, I don't know if she's doing that and saying that to kind of inflate his ego, or if it's actually sincere. But yeah, like she's saying that like he has this sort of reputation, this image that's being created outside of his control. Well, she has to be sincere, right? Because she mentions Sarah Tierney from Random House. And immediately when she says that, Don is like, oh, she's serious. Yep. Like, yeah, because she wouldn't have known that otherwise. And it also explains earlier in the season, like why she was so actively pursuing him. They have their little like dalliance, right, in the car. But she's kind of not content with that, right? She made the first move, by the way. But then, of course, like she's the one who's going to his office. She's the one who's sort of like actively pursuing him, calling him and trying to get uh, the affair going. Things have shifted at this point where he's the one who's calling her at the country club. And uh, I, I was going to ask you this because there's a whole thing in the country club, right, where I, my first glance of the episode, my thinking is that the reason he wants to jump into bed with Bobby after all that stuff is because of he's in the the fashion not before the fashion show thing starts he's like standing up uh the guys just like many of whom will not be enjoying ribs tonight what a what a line of dialogue i have to assume you enjoyed uh, i mean that moment i thought his whole character in general was pretty fun at least for the he short was, time we saw oh. him Lester, a, a rough writer. Yeah, rough writer. Yeah, geez, Louise. <laughs> I love the delivery of his lines. Yeah. Um, 
but no, like Don stands up and then Sally is clapping and everything. And he looks again, he looks so uncomfortable because just like the way that he sees Betty is, you know, as somebody who's not a mother, he sees himself as like, oh, I'm not Don. I'm Dick Whitman. You know, the whole situation reminds him of that. And it's something that pierces him. And I think uh, my first glance at the episode is like, I'm always thinking the reason he wants to go have sex with Bobby at that point is because he wants to go be Dick Whitman. I'm kind of wondering, though, if if I'm overthinking it and if it really is more a matter of like, because the fashion show is happening and you, you kind of get the sense, right, who's like, I'm going to go. And then Betty's like, I would have thought you would want to you know be here for this because you're a guy and like ladies in their underwear, like for the 60s. Like that's not, you know, you don't see that every day. And I always just thought he was he was uninterested. But I wonder maybe maybe you agree or disagree. But I wonder if it was more of just like he's just a red blooded American male. Right. As Pete said in the last episode, he just sees that and he's like, all right, I, I'm turned on. I'm aroused. You know, I, you know, he, is, I think it's maybe the episode su- subtly saying it. it's not that he's unattracted to Betty when she has those clothes on. He just doesn't view her in that context. But, you know, he sees that in the fashion show and is immediately like, I want to have sex now. So I'm going to go have sex with Bobby. But then, of course, she's unavailable. So he goes home. My thinking is that he essentially pleasures himself for that reason, or he's just frustrated. But I, I mean, the, it doesn't give you any clear indication either way. Do you think I'm completely off base here? Though This is just like a new sort of, yeah. uh, I wasn't sure if this was uh, close to reasonable. I don't, I mean, I, I can't say I know for sure. I mean, there was a part of me, I was wondering if like seeing the uh, underwear fashion show hit close to home, not only after the uh, veteran, uh, presentation but because he's thinking about work and thinking about how like that kind of relates to his struggle with don and dick and that he like kind of got very close to losing that control and like just i don't know I, like like i said like there's a sort of inability with his character and a lot of characters in uh this episode to kind of separate their home lives and their work lives and if i, I didn't know if that was like a moment where things kind of conflated emotionally for him in a way that he wasn't really equipped to handle at such a sensitive and kind of vulnerable moment for him but that might be me reading right, too right. much into it. That, that's the thing I do like about this episode is like you you can kind of take different approaches. And the, I think like in a way they can all be sort of valid in their own ways almost. Uh, so and, and obviously I think th- that moment too, like when he's alone, kind of like looking out, not sure what to think. Um, and that moment when Sally is like clapping and like looking at him with admiration, it's a very important moment because obviously it goes into what happens at the end of the episode, which is a real gut punch right you know this he just suddenly starts to have like what looks like an almost panic attack um and there's a lot we could read into that before before we get to the end of the episode though i i we haven't even talked about the very beginning which this is one of those few times where we kind of get a big anachronism in the show which is they play a decemberist song the infanta which is a modern song and I've always found it very striking. It's It, it kind of takes you by surprise. It's kind of the same idea, uh, same kind of opening scene montage as what we had at the beginning of the season, although that was the twist, uh, the, the second version of the twist by uh, let's do the twist again like we did last summer, that whole thing. And uh, But this time, and it's just Peggy, Joan, and Betty, right? Putting on their undergarments and everything. Uh, what, what did you think of this choice, this artistic choice to do a modern song? Um, I mean, I I tried to look into the reasoning for this, and it just looks like Matthew Weiner just liked the song and wanted to play it. Well, but, you know, that's, of course, what he's going to say in an interview. Yeah, I mean, it's a Decemberist song. I don't know how you feel about the Decemberist. 
I was a fan um, back like around this time, sure. 2008 to 2011. Like that was kind of their peak. What do you say? I kind of moved from Decemberist to like Avid Brothers a little bit okay. and then, you know, fell they off. They got you. I don't know. I, I do like Decemberist. Fine. I can't say I'm a, a super fan or anything, but I do appreciate that with this song, which is uh, Infantasia, right? I believe that's the song they picked. Or Infanta. The Infanta. Infanta, yeah. The Infanta. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's deliberately meant to be that that kind of jarring um, counterbalance where uh, not only in the sense that it's a song from 2005 being played in this 1962, 1963 setting, but the song itself is kind of meant to be progressive in style, but the lyrics itself are kind of old fashioned and talking about this very, you know, uh, you know, uh, old fashioned story. And it's intentionally sort of acronistic in that way. And in, in the sense of like, not only is a song sort of acronistic by design, but it's just being placed in this time. And so it has that kind of weird, like, I don't know. It, it reminds me a bit of like, um, like in like Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, when they play like gang of four at the beginning, and it's like this very old fashioned setting, but it has a very, well, kind one of, of my favorite movies, a night's tale, you sure. know, playing, uh, all kinds of anachronistic music. Mm-hmm. It, it's fun. It, it's atmospheric. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a device that, and I know Matt Zoller sites touched upon a lot of what you're saying mm-hmm. in the book, Mad Men Carousel. Uh, I also think, uh, Noel Murray touched upon this in his AV club oh, did it? interview where it's like, it helps, it helps take you to the past while keeping your head rooted in the future. Mm-hmm. Because then when you're watching everybody put the underwear on and the constrictions and everything, it reminds, and you're hearing a modern song, it, it immediately gets you thinking out of the immersion and being like, women today don't only really have to do the same things, like have that same mm-hmm. like level of like expectation um, as they used to. And it, it's notable too, that it ends with Peggy putting on pantyhose, which was a very new thing at that time. Yeah. Um, well, and certainly had a different context. But not only that, but the brassiere that they're advertising, she's wearing as well. Like it's literally yes. on her body. Uh, and, and it seems to be her brassiere of choice. Uh, and yet, you know, obviously throughout this whole episode, uh, not only, Peggy, but Joan don't really get consulted or even like invited into a lot of like the major discussions about this thing. Joan right. obviously is, uh, you know, just kind of ogled throughout, like just obviously like, you know, she's a, you know, well-endowed woman. And she even uh, says to Peggy, you're, you're in their country right now. I'm not part of that. Like well, she, there's such a clear separation. Uh, but no, but even at one point, like, doesn't she say something like kind of quippy, just like, uh, if another man asked me about my boobs again or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so she just kind of is seen as like this, you know, office sex symbol, not really valued for uh, the intelligence she clearly has or what experience she could bring into this. But then subsequently, yeah, like beg- uh, Peggy's basically begging to like offer some input, not only as, you know, a fledging copywriter trying to lay her stake in this uh, company, but just like because she has the knowledge that they need for how to sell uh, the clothing that she is literally wearing. And yet the the men around her don't want to contribute, but I don't want to jump ahead from uh, the song discussion. I was going to mention that uh, another kind of uh, famous filmmaker to do that pretty often in his film is obviously Quentin Tarantino. I feel like one of the more famous examples is in like Inglorious Bastards, where you have this like kind of you know more modern song counterbalance against like his past time and seeing like how that's gonna like you know without giving too much away if anyone listening hasn't seen that film like how that kind of informs how the film's gonna take a path different to what history took yeah and have kind of a more modern content uh confrontation with what uh was happening at this time and yeah I, I look at it in that kind of way as if like yeah it's like it is a little drawing at first especially for a show like Mad Men that is so often very careful about the the details and in keeping everything uh time and period sensitive but yeah, I, don't know. I, I think, you know, given what they're doing here and how it's intentionally supposed to be jarring, it ultimately fits. 
Right. And I think that's totally true because I think at this point, you know, after how many episodes of Mad Men, I think almost 20 at this point, the show has earned credibility. It's earned that level of it knows what it's doing. And it knows, of course, it's using a modern song. That's as obvious as it gets. And it get, people are in that zone where they're not going to question it too much. They're instead going to sit back and be like, of course, there is a reason for this. Let's think about it. And so, yeah, I think the show has earned that uh, that chance to be well, a little risky, yeah. a little, little risky and frisky. Yeah. You know? Uh, and Weiner has earned that trust, as you were saying, like not only, you know, in terms of the show, but him as a creator, like it's not like it, the audience isn't thinking like, oh, this song's super inappropriate for this time. They're thinking, oh, like very interesting choice. Why did you do that, Mr. Weiner? And, mm-hmm. and, and that's, yeah, a credit to what he has been able to do in just a matter of a season and a half at this point. Right on. And yeah, I'm glad you did mention the, the the big Peggy plot of this episode, because I was going to bring up as well that both Peggy and Duck, but Peggy even more so, are often shot like as totally isolated in this episode, because I think a big thing with both of these characters is that they feel excluded. They feel like they're not really part of Sterling Cooper the way that they want to be. In Peggy's case, it's like we've been saying, she very much just doesn't feel like she's one of the boys. And people have been telling her, by people I mean Bobby and Joan, that you know, you, you got to be a woman. Like if you try to be a guy, like Freddie even says right at the beginning, like Peggy's just the man to do it, you know? And, and it's sort of echoing that that's been her approach is to be a guy, you know, or to take that on. And that's how she's going to get respect around there. But clearly, you know, her femininity is an asset. It's something that she can use. And it's something she's not sure she wants to use. Uh, even when she kind of gets her like little victory moment at the end, you see the sort of discomfort at the that choice of like was this really what i should be doing you know is this worth it and a lot of the the shots in this episode are they go very far to show like she's always outside of the group the guys are shot kind of in a you know a bunch uh she literally has the door closed in her face i mean it's very very intentional you can tell that phil abraham is a director of photography at heart when he directs things he's always thinking about visual metaphors some people would criticize it and be it's a little be like oh my gosh it's a little bit too blunt but in this in this case i think it's well deserved because it is such a an important fabric to the story. Ducks is even even more pronounced in some ways because it, one of the first things he says to to Don in their like little fake lunch meeting is that he just feels like he's he's not getting into the the swing of things, you know. And Don's like eighteen months in, you know. It's like we're not we can't be that unusual. And like you really get the sense that like Ducks insecurity that's his big flaw, right? He feels extremely insecure. He feels like. Nobody accepts him, wants him to be there, that he, you know, has this dark past. He doesn't want to keep being reminded of people shit on him all the time. I mean, his kids, Will Ashton, his kids are just flat out mean to him. And it's, they just rightfully so. I think you and I are not Duck fans, but Duck gets a lot of hey, shit in this episode. I don't really have any strong or super strong negative feelings towards duck i'm kind of more neutral at this point but i mean i don't know i mean it's not like he's one of the most reviled characters in all of mad men really because of what he does to chauncey um it's truly one of the most yeah i mean i didn't want to get too far ahead but that is a a real uh downer of a moment to say the least literally getting rid of his dog his dog who you know the name is very clear like he he had this dog in london london is like where he had his wife, where his family was together, and they're still there. And the idea that, like, yeah, he doesn't want to have his dog back, 
He doesn't want that reminder. He doesn't want, I mean, part of it is that he's just extremely selfish. He doesn't want to take care of anything. Yeah. But I think oh, as well, like he also just doesn't want this like remnant from his past, just constantly staring at him because well, when he wants to, you know, dive back into, you know, alcohol, the dog is what stops him because he, it reminds him of like what he went through. Yeah. Right. And so that's why he feels like he has to get rid of the dog so he mm-hmm. can go back up there and, and drink, which is my takeaway from that yeah. shot. But it isn't it isn't overly explicit. You you could read it a certain way of like, oh, maybe he didn't drink, but I think he did. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, and as you were kind of alluding to, the dog represents this, uh, you know, it, it, the fact that like many characters in the show, like he can't really separate his home and work life like his peers are always kind of looking at him through his biggest sin, which is this affair that's often mentioned, but not really discussed in detail that happened before he came on to uh, Sterling Cooper. And yeah, and like the fact that like he has this kind of dog that is, you know, metaphorically just kind of following him around, just, you know, always kind of serving as like this, you know, physical reminder of uh, what he can't like what he can't escape. And then you have that funny scene with him and Pete where Pete <laughs> like kind of, he just wants to be so badly. He wants to be like a man and have that kind of like mystique and that sort of like authority in the office. And he's just like, like a true psychopath is just like, yeah, I think I should get a dog or I should bring my dog in. And he's like, Oh, like what kind of dog do you have? Like, he's like, Oh, I don't have a dog. It would just be for the work. He's like, all right, well, good luck with that, Pete. <laughs> He's like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> it's like such a great moment. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I really appreciated, uh, as a dog man myself, uh, having the dog around the office. I think they didn't do enough with Chonsky in this episode. <laughs> Personally, I thought there should have been like an air bud kind of thing going on where, <laughs> where you know, he does a pitch. Well, no, I was going to say ma- he sells maiden for him. Well, I, I was thinking there's... like, you know, as the episode progresses, you like see he's like he gets little glasses. He has like a suit. Um, he has a little like glass. And then they're like cigarette. Yeah. Chonsky is just like, you know, like getting ready to pitch. Dog and goes into Roger's office and yeah. Chauncey and Roger. And then they're all just like, cigarettes. yeah. And it's like, well, I don't know if the dog can give a pitch. And they say, of course, you know, there's something in the rule book that says the dog can't pitch to the client. It goes over great. He he becomes, uh, you know, the new head of accounts. <laughs> duck is beside himself. Duck, yeah. The duck gets rid of the dog. No, that's what it should. That's what should have happened after he tried to abandon the dog. The dog ends up roaming Madison Avenue yes, and getting a job at McCann. Yeah, exactly. That, that would have been. That's my headcanon, actually, is what happened. Is that the dog didn't like go astray and have this really tragic life. It actually went and uh, bettered itself uh, as it right. went along and became, uh, you know, Duck's rival, which is just fitting. like Duck's yeah. ex-wife just went on and found a better family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, Seriously, though, his kids, I mean, the, the moment where he's just like, man, I, it, can, it can be really tough, huh? Like not having your dad around. And, and her, his daughter's just like, we don't care. <laughs> and I love them. I love them. They're just so like they're of that age, right? Where they're just, you know, they're going to be the meanest people on the planet, as John Mulaney would say. But uh, there's also that great delivery that the his son has where he's just like, I have money. I have one hundred and fifty dollars. And I just, I love Mad Men. It's just like, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything, but it's just like a little, I just, I can just see like Matthew Weiner and Phil Abraham just being like, no, 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 you really need to sell this line. You need to say this line. Like you have not $150, you have $25,000. <laughs> like that's, that's like the zone, the pitch that you need to hit right now. And sure enough, 
Yeah, indeed. There, there's a lot of good stuff in here. There's Betty's whole just like, oh, it'd be like college, you know, let's be friends. Um, I liked how Arthur was like, I didn't know you belonged here. You know, that whole country club wasp well, yeah. thing always wrinkles uh, me. Yeah, I was going to mention that before. I feel like that kind of adds to uh, Don's discomfort is that he comes from, you know, a very, you know, uh, mm-hmm. poor background. And, you know, country clubs are literally something you have to get invited into. Even, you know, someone of privilege like Don and Betty are now, he's like, it's something that he feels like his status therein is always going to kind of be in question, always yes. uh, in trouble. And I feel like that kind of adds to his uh, general discomfort, not only uh, with being at the country club, but watching that uh, display with the underwear show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to mention this too. We kind of skipped past this, but there's the whole thing where Peggy sells Clearasil that ad to Pete. And, you know, it's obviously like, we're seeing that like Peggy is really good at this. Like she's just showing some like natural raw talent of taking, like recognizing the benefit and noticing the problem, how limited they are with like the creative that they have when Pete shows her the picture. And she just comes up with this great idea, like right off the spot, you know, of like it could be like a date. And like, it, it just seems like she's been really working hard at this. And it's a great way to start her arc of this episode because then, then it's tragic to see like how she continues to be excluded, even though she has all this talent. And she, of course, has Paul as a rival because he obviously has the playtex idea that Don really likes. But at least in this moment, I like how there are two moments actually where she seems to show or at least impress Sal. Sal really seems to recognize it. Like when she's doing that, Sal's just kind of like, yeah, you know, like he's kind of like into it. Like, I think he just, he recognizes it as an art director. And there's the scene later where they're kind of making fun of Peggy and calling her a Gertrude Stein. And he sticks up for her right in front of everybody. He takes that risk. And I think it's because Sal recognizes that like, you know, fuck all you guys. Like she rules like team Peggy Olson over here in the Sal land. Obviously he's not like a a total friend, but I don't know. I just, I like that there is that nice little subtle touch. Is it something you noticed at all? Cause I I don't know if it's something I ever noticed before necessarily, but yeah, I always take special notice of Sal cause he's my favorite character on the show, (laughs) but, um, but no, I did hear first folks. I'm sure I've said that before already. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you said it so full throatedly. Like, I, I think you said like, oh, I really like. I don't know if you said he's he's definitively your favorite. He's my favorite. I like Sal. Uh, uh-huh. I, I hope that's a comment I don't have to rescind because of later actions with his character. I have no idea where it go- where he goes. That's the Mad Men experience. That's the full Mad Men treatment. Yeah, is uh, standing a character and then I mean, all of a sudden. I mean, certainly you kind of, I mean, not deliberately, but, you know, you and Mike kind of allude to like certain characters getting better or worse as the show goes along. Certainly Ken Cosgrove, for instance, is like kind of a chode in the first season, but you're always just kind of like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, Ken's all right. We, we vouch for him. I'm like, okay, so maybe he gets better as this goes along. And then that Paul Kinsey character, I'm always like, oh, I don't know. He's, you know, doesn't seem worse than the rest of them. And you're like, no, 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 no. This dude sucks. Don't keep, keep, keep your eye on him. He's a piece of shit. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Something happens. <laughs> well, that's more a harry crane than paul okay. uh, I get, I Paul get, to me is like one of the more consistently okay. like eye rolly characters but like i'm not gonna lie i get paul and harry kind of mixed up at this point i'm sure that <laughs> i'm sure there's gonna be differences and, and notable differences as, they, as the show goes along but in my brain they you think the late. beard would have held no yeah. harry crane in this episode though um i mean or trudy a tr- oh no trudy is in the episode she has like that one scene where they're barbecuing it at the apartment but oh yeah that's right yeah you see it um and Real i still quick, i still have some things to say about pete too but uh we can discuss that in a bit but uh well, we can, yeah i mean in in this scene he's like the like 
thanks, Clearasil. I think that was a real ad campaign. Or I think I remember learning about that. Um, so I think that's what they're drawing from. But yeah, that's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, where P is sort of like, play with it. You know, he pitches the line. He kind of does the Bethlehem Steel thing again. And it's it's kind of interesting how Peggy doesn't fight him. She's And she's just sort of like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, sure. I'll think about it. Yeah, whatever. Like, she, she just, I think, shows here... Uh, a virtue or a sort of like a tactic that Don has because Don does the same sort of thing with duck. He has a moment in this episode where he could tell duck to go to hell because he even sets it up right. Where he's just like, you pitch more to me than you do to clients. And then he gets another, I told you so as duck would say, when play is sort of like, ah, eh, we don't need to do this anyway. And they wasted all their time, but Don doesn't lash out at duck. He's just sort of like, Hey, as long as the client is happy. And I think it's very purposeful that Peggy has that same mindset because we're continuously seeing like she is like sort of a Don Draper in the making, if you would agree. Well, yeah, undeniably so. I mean, the fact that this whole season has like paralleled them throughout, I think makes that pretty evident. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, you said you had stuff to say about Pete. I don't don't want you to hold back. I mean, he was his own shitty self in this episode, for sure. I mean, I kind of mentioned it in part already, but yeah, he's still trying to be like kind of the big man on campus, trying to assert himself as a a man. Uh, You know, he's still a boy among men, but he wants to be kind of respected as such. He's the one who doesn't want to separate work and family, right? Even so far as uh, having that uh, affair with uh, the would-be uh, model, the woman that auditioned and uh, didn't get the part. But yeah, but there's that moment where yeah. she also kind of has her own secret, which is that she's like living with her mother, her mother lives with her or something. I'm not exactly sure which, but um, it, it it's for a moment. I mean, I guess Pete kind of gets over it, but it's like kind of a, a turnoff for him as well. And uh, I think Matt Zolorsai is kind of uh, alludes to it being the fact that he like, kind of withheld or she, sorry, she withheld this kind of information from him because she was kind of put on her his own facade. She wants to present herself as this kind of more independent, uh, you know, forthright person. But I don't know. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think it kind of ties back into, again, Pete wants to be a man. He doesn't want to be a boy. And he kind of sees, you know, when he she's living with her mother, it's kind of like this, like, teenage romance where they kind of have to hide from the parents and do this thing in secret. And I feel like that kind of ties into like, he wants to be a man, do something irresponsible and kind of dirty and like have his affair, but he's still just acting out like a child and he can't really escape that. Yeah. I think the genius of the Pete Campbell character is that he's the kind of person that we all know in our lives who is going to be whoever the world tells him that he's supposed to be. He doesn't have his own beliefs he doesn't have his own sort of guiding morality. He just, he is a product of nurture. He's sort of the anti-nature kind of character. Most people are mixtures of the two. They're nature and nurture, right? With Pete, his nature is more sort of like, I am who the world says I'm supposed to be. And his frustration, his pettiness, all the ways that he lashes out, it's all a result from him growing up and being told this, 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 and this about masculinity, about what's expected of him and business and manhood and all that. And him just constantly seeing that he can't do it and sort of hitting a brick wall, you know, over and over again, which is why I think that when he, when he looks into the mirror, he smiles because it doesn't matter to him that it's not real, that he's not really a man. It looks like it is. And to him, it's like he is able to sort of even have like a semblance of that experience. That's all he needs to be like content 
And I think that it's, it's a very brilliant move because I just think that and we talked about this a bunch. People continuously, I think, misunderstand his character and try to put him as like sociopathic. And I don't think that's at it's, it's at all. It seems that way. But we know people in our lives who are like this, who, you know, may have like political beliefs, right? Be extremely like, you know, you think they're like very progressive or maybe you think they're very conservative, whatever it is. But like, if you just kind of change their circumstances a little bit, their beliefs and the way they approach the world completely changes like as soon as it becomes convenient for them, because it's, they don't really believe anything. They just kind of like ride whatever wave they're on, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he's just, uh, to put it in modern terms, he's just unfortunately a little too cringe, which is something I, I think you've said earlier today in private, you sort of sympathize with, not with Pete Campbell, but the idea of cringe. Um, but yeah, I don't know. He's just, uh, yeah, he, he's someone who just can't really buy his way into the one thing he wants, which is respect. And, and and he feels like he's entitled to the sort of thing that he just can't have, at least at this point in his life and his career. But he's, you know, it, it's rather than like feel like uh, reflection or like uh, take it in and stride, he's like indignant and sort of uh, petty and, and, and jealous of it. And yeah, and now that kind of bleeds into his uh, complicated relationship with Peggy. And how like now she's kind of putting herself in this position where she can be admired and kind of ogled by men in the office and kind of use her femininity uh, to assert herself. But yeah, he just kind of uh, just he's not taking that too well. (laughs) I think that's you know what we talked about this right last season. We talked about how in a lot of ways. Don isn't either Don or Dick at a given time. He tends to be a mix of both of them. And I think that's what he sees in Peggy is that she has the sort of the Don Draper persona that is manufactured, that is artificial. She's able to put that on, but she's also her authentic self at the same time. She kind of like merges the two and knows when to be what she needs to be for a given situation. And, you know, we've talked about how real art, creativity comes from that honest place. You can have your outer shell, you know, you can have the sort of repressive guard up but ultimately who you are deep down needs to exist and be cultivated because that's where the art comes from. Pete, I think, is absolutely a 100% nothing but the shell. He's just the shell. He And he's constantly trying to be the Don Draper. He's just trying to inhabit something without that honesty. And that's his downfall. That's why he can't, he's not a creator. He's not an artist. He's none of that stuff. And I think that's why he, uh, in some weird ways, Peggy was really attracted to him because he represented a version of something or something trying to be something that she is attracted to. It, it is symbolic. And she's, of course, growing out of that, you know, since obviously she had her heart broken by the guy where she's sort of like, oh, you know what? There is no substance to that. And, you know, she recognizes in Don in the first episode, right? She's she thinks that, like, she can maybe sleep with Don to get ahead, but she's quickly rejected. I think she's always sort of seen from Don that two layer approach to being a human being in the workplace. And she's just continuing to fall down that path, follow down that path. And Pete is not. Pete is kind of in a weird way, more of a duck, but uh, he's more of like what duck might've been like when he was uh, Pete's age. Yeah. I mean, and I would even go one step further as to say that uh, ultimately Pete is uh an admin heart only in the sense that he's trying to sell people on the idea of Pete Campbell. And at least at this point, he is not quite doing that successfully. I want to mention this too. In my notes, I said that 
when Sally is clapping at dawn and he's standing during like the right before the fashion show thing at the country club, you'll notice that uh, David Carbonara's theme, the Mad Men Suite, is playing. And it really works because I like to think of this as like the dick music. It plays a lot when Don is like reflecting on his Dick Whitman persona. It, it, especially like in 5G, it plays a lot in that episode. So I thought that that was a nice little musical touch. Uh, you know, certainly when you watch the show enough, <laughs> it's, it becomes one of those things that sticks out more and more. Um, does that uh, music, so- does that music uh, return for the mirror scene at the end? Um, I don't think the same part of the song does. No, but okay. I, I, I'd have to rewatch. I think it's a different part of the Mad Men suite. But okay. I don't want to say that. I don't know. I, that wasn't uh, a leading question. That was an honest question. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I don't even know if he's really a dick in that moment. If, you know, pardon the pun. Um, I was also curious because Pete and Trudy and Bud and his wife, they're not at the country club. Um, they're kind of like barbecuing at home. And I had this fleeting thought. I was like, I wonder if that has to do with like, you know, them not being as flush as they used to be or like the stuff with their dad maybe being a reason why they don't have like a country club sort of thing they talk about things they can do maybe for appearances but uh i don't know i kind of had that fleeting thought maybe it was maybe it's not uh maybe i'm overthinking it but there was even the part where he's talking to peggy the next day and she's kind of and he's kind of like oh we just kind of hung around or whatever he's he's more interested in what she did i guess not really but you know he then he spoils liberty vance for her and all that so yeah. He spoiled it for me, too. I haven't seen that movie. I haven't seen it either. So, you know, he spoiled three people today. What a jerk. Uh, yeah. There you go. Um, but, yeah, I I, I was going to ask you about that Liberty Vance. I was also going to quiet inquire about, like, do you think it's deliberate that Duck also has uh, a son and a daughter in the same way that Don does? And that he has this sort mm. of dysfunctional relationship with both of them, but in a way that's like he's actually kind of the opposite of Don, that like he wants to have that relationship, but it can't. And meanwhile, like Sally's so like dotting and sincere and like wanting to be like the perfect little child for dad. And he uh, keeps pushing her away, especially at the end there where like she, you know, it's like, no talking, you know, like it, knowing that she yeah. can't do that. And then like that obviously, you know, conflates where he's thinking about uh, Bobby and just, you know, kind of caught in this, like, you know, looking at himself and realizing that he's not staring at Dick Whitman, but rather the facade of Don Draper and, you know, having like the, the I think Don or uh, Matt Zolorsize kind of talks about like the shaving cream kind of looks like an old man beard. And that kind of yeah. ties into his fears of aging and like this, like mid like crisis. He's like, kind of somewhat having throughout the season and uh yeah i don't know i think that's that's all compelling well, yeah i want to i want to finish with that you know because i i, I want to build up to it because i think it's such a big pivotal moment sure um and I, one thing too like at the country club one, uh, another thing i forgot to mention is that i think betty realizes that he's gonna go off to cheat on her because like i think like like the look on her face when she's just like you're gonna go we haven't even like she gets so upset and I think it's one of those moments where it's like, yeah, she's she's suspicious, you know, well past being suspicious that something is going on. Um, and, and it makes sense for her to think that because like he sees a bunch of like half naked women and then suddenly he's like, I got to go and go do a work thing. And then, you know, there you go. Um, so that was kind of sad. And then he just yeah. goes home and drinks milk. Yeah. Weirdo. Yeah. He should have I mean- just gone back and hung out with his kids and wife. Doesn't he love him? Well, I mean, I do appreciate that this show, again, like there's so there's an opportunity here, especially with the reintroduction of Arthur's character, where a lesser show, I think, would have been like, OK, this is a time where, you know, 
Betty in a moment of, you know, personal conflict actually has that affair with Arthur. And like that causes like, you know, some like a love triangle or something happens. And no, she actually like is, you know, obviously distraught, but she's like, okay, maybe if I just kind of woo him and like kind of show my sexuality yeah. with this bikini that she's sort of inappropriately wearing around her kids. Uh, I have that in my notes as well. It's, it does seem like a clear response from Betty, uh, you know, of like, that's how I'm going to get Don to like notice me. It, it's, it's sad. She just wants to have sex. Mm-hmm. Don. Yeah. Help just, her. Just, just wants some loving. Does yes. she want to be Doesn't more need. of a Jackie or a Marilyn, though? That's the thing, isn't it? She's kind of um, both. Right we, have, we haven't really talked about that whole pitch, right? Where yeah. Paul, you know, kind of is like, I had this brilliant idea. You know, sometimes he talks like Stewie. Uh, but he's sort of like, yeah, you know, every girl's a Jackie or a Marilyn, you know, obviously extremely reductive. And I mean, their ad that they do for it is so reductive to the point of like, life is black and white, right? Of like, oh, you're either this or that. It's all binary. Instead of, of course, no, there, there's in-betweens. People aren't just black yeah. and white. And then Peggy even disproves that right in the room. But, you know, obviously it doesn't matter. It's all about like what they well, can sell in an ad and not about the yeah. truth. Well, that, and I think it's also just like, they. I think... They just want that simple pitch. They want things to be kind of simplistic in that literally black and white way. Because then, mm-hmm. like, if it's more complicated, they have to think about it a little bit more in depth. Uh, not only do they have to feel kind of guilt and remorse for how they look at women, but also, like, it's harder to kind of come up with a pitch they want to sell. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I also think uh, it's interesting that I think in the book, uh, Mad Men Carousel, they point this out that, um, you know, this is obviously just before uh, the Kennedy assassination and Marilyn Monroe's suicide. And Which that, is the following year, right? right? I mean, this is, we're still in 62. So, I mean, there's still some mm-hmm. time before all of that happens. Right. But yeah, but then, like, you know, uh, you know, we see uh, Jackie Kennedy or the model dressed as Jackie Kennedy in the black underwear which is you know supposed to you know later be uh profound in the sense that she's kind of memorialized for wearing the black uh funeral dress uh you know that year and then later obviously uh marilyn Monroe becomes an icon in part because of the tragedy that she died and that is the the, the big white billowing dress from seven year inch that she wore and yeah so i think that's very clever and and the profound like i said able to be nostalgic but be present in the moment that that balance that uh, mad men finds very well it adds to the dramatic irony, right? Of like, they're like, oh, we could come to this pitch later. <laughs> you know, like they could, right? But uh, obviously the, the there isn't a, as long of a shelf life for this creative idea as they, they have no reason to believe that in a year, <laughs> like a, an ad like that doesn't work. But obviously for now, they think they're good. Um, so Roger doesn't get a lot in this episode, but you know, he does have a couple moments. He bums the cigarette off of uh, Don and he's like, all right, well, you know, you and duck need to make up. Uh, so he facilitates that. I think that he genuinely like looks, I, I found the whole thing with Roger fascinating because I've never put a total finger on where he stands with duck getting his job. Basically there, there's never a lot of like conflict with this whole thing, at least not yet. Um, where he's sort of like, Oh, I was replaced and all that. It, to me, it seems like he doesn't care. He's, he's kind of fine with somebody else taking on the responsibility because in a lot of ways, you know, he's ha- he inherited the job and, you know, his name is on the, the building, not because of him, but because of his dad. And so I think part of him is sort of like, yeah, whatever. Um, but there is this interesting thing where he goes out of his way to try to patch things up between Duck and Don. I've always found it kind of interesting because we understand why he would want things to work, be good for Don, uh, for Don to be happy. But Duck is a different story because obviously what what does he see, you know, as a value of Duck 
um, be, you know, being around and everything. And I guess part of it is because like he, he ultimately is motivated by money. He, the reason he wanted American airlines is because he, he wanted to bring in the money and, and he likes money and all of that. But yeah, I mean, it's something to think about. I don't think this episode offers like any concrete answers to that question, but it's just, I think building a couple of things to take note of that I'm going to be taking note of. Cause I wonder if there are more clues to this that I hadn't picked up on before. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you have a theory or anything, but uh, sure, I'd love to hear I it. I wish I did. I don't, unfortunately. It's 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 pretty mysterious, right? It's kind of like, huh, yeah, there's, there's something there and I feel like it's coming, some kind of explanation. It's something I never really noticed or cared that much about because other stuff happens, but uh, there might be something there or something that they might have dropped uh, regarding his character. Um, okay, so then I was also going to mention, yeah, Duck is a veteran. There's a lot of stuff with veterans in this episode, and uh, it is kind of interesting. You well, know, it's Memorial Day. Yeah, I was going to say, it's Memorial Day. <laughs> yeah. He also mentions that he didn't want to be a fifth wheel at McCann, which I thought was also kind of interesting because I think like that's kind of where Don was headed, right? Last season when McCann was courting him. And uh, yeah, something to take note of that like Duck you know, coming from YNR and having the pedigree he did, he thinks that he, yeah, he could have gotten a safe job, but he wants to be at Sterling Cooper for a reason. You could read that as him just sort of like puffing himself up. Who knows? Um, like if he would have gotten any job, but uh, Sterling Cooper picking him up, obviously it was beneficial for Sterling Cooper because despite his personal issues, his uh, experience and everything like that was very impressive right on paper. But I think, I think Don's criticism of him is so valid that's really all we've seen with this guy he pitches don instead of clients and uh, i could i can see why that would frustrate don because it's like what the heck you know like it's obvious that he didn't have to deal with this with roger as much i suppose but then that obviously i mean now talking about with you that kind of shows that dick and peter sort of parallel with one another because they're both kind of trying to sell themselves to the office and sell themselves as being worthy and you know uh you know, equals with everyone else, but they have these obvious hangups and, you know, that kind of makes uh, that moment with the dog with Pete a little bit funnier because it's just like, yeah, he's in a weird way, almost sort of idolizing the guy that is kind of mirroring him already. And obviously mirrors play a heavy part in this episode as well. Yeah. And I also think that duck is the kind of person who constantly lets other people define him. You know, people call him duck, you know, even though he doesn't want to be called duck. You know, he has the ducks on his wall because people gave him that. And I think that's his issue is that his insecurity is so deep oh, yeah. that he lets other people define him. Mm-hmm. That's something Don would never do. Did you, you know, uh, Don is always trying to control mm-hmm. what other people think of him. I was going to bring this up before, but uh, did you ever notice that I guess on the uh, official like Mad Men wiki for the duck Phillips page, it, they, they avoid putting duck at all, like even as his nickname, because like how much he hates the name duck. And it's like kind of a bit. <laughs> oh, I think it's cute. That's funny. Um, yeah, let's take a look at that. I didn't know that. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, we, we've talked about most of the rest of the stuff that happens, like Pete pitching Duck on the dog. Um, you know, Pete fails a lot of pitches in uh, this episode. I mean, he gets one pitch. He, he pitches his father-in-law on Clearasel. He successfully pitches uh, the actress, or the model, um, to have sex with him. She's impressed, of course, like account executive, you know, all that. So he, he gets his little win, you know, he, he cheats on his wife with somebody that he's attracted to, but yeah, there's, there's all that drama. Um, and then, yeah, this all, this was around the part of the episode where I was like really starting to think that, you know, if 
women are a Jackie or a Marilyn, if you take that black and white rubric, how would you apply that to Don and Pete? Because there's that point where Don says, where he's trying to tell Duck, like, oh, what what kind of breadcrumbs can you give Playtex? Don sort of supposes that maybe it's two girls. Ultimately, they go with one. But I think that there is that idea, right, of like, are Don and Pete like two people? And he sort of like defaults to you're either one thing or the other, even though ultimately it comes down to his real philosophy is that it's one person. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I keep coming back to this idea where Don and Pete represent that same sort of like flavor. And, you know, I think Pete obviously looks at Trudy as Jackie and then he literally wants to have sex with Marilyn. But then you have the end of the episode where he sees Peggy and he looks pretty disappointed in what she's doing. And I've, I've, I've seen a lot of different takes on this. Some people think it's because he's jealous. Some people think it's because he thought better of Peggy. Um, some people think it's because he's just a brat. <laughs> it's just sort of like, I want attention. Like, I don't know. Uh, where, where, do, where do you land on all that stuff? Well, I mean, we talked about this, uh, at the end of season one that like, if I recall correctly, um, Don is like a Nixon type that has like a JFK hidden inside him or did it get backwards? Um, um like, say it again? like outwardly, he kind of presents himself as a Nixon, but he has that sort of like soulful Kennedy kind of mentality Kennedy yeah. going inside him. But I was thinking like in, in a way, uh, Pete's sort of the opposite. Like he's someone who wants to kind of idealize himself as a uh, Kennedy type kind of fitting that role uh, of a modern man. Uh, but he has like that kind of repressed Nixon mentality caught inside him, that kind of mm-hmm. constricted conservative uh, mentality of what a man is and what a man should be. And uh, I think that kind of makes him sort of the opposite foil once again to to Don here in ways that he doesn't really even fully know or can comprehend. Yeah. You could even call this episode Jackie versus Marilyn. <laughs> that would have been funny. Um yeah, and I, I was going to mention too the Playtex pitch itself. It's like it's so male centric, and it, and it's just fascinating to watch like how so much of it is built on not women, you know, because we're of course more used to modern sort of advertising and you know treating women as like people with agency who make their own choices, irregardless, irregardless. I can't believe I said that. Regardless of what men think, I was I think I was going to say irrespective or something like that, but um this pitch that they give is so male centric. It's all about like, Oh, women are just trying to please men. And it's so removed. I think from like what is really going through women's minds most of the time, obviously they want to be attractive, but there is more of like, they want to be attractive because they want to be happy and it feels good to be attractive. Not just because I, I, all I care about is making men happy. It is sort of that, you know, sentiment that those guys hold that obviously I think Peggy understands, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a reason why I think like the original pitch was something that she was a little bit more keen on, right? Because it was about her, it was about the woman of like, oh, because it fits well. You know, the fact that it's a reliable fit is a benefit to the product that rings true. It's why it makes money because that's what women really care about. But there is something to like, oh, well, we want to be like maiden for because, you know, they have it in their heads that like, oh, it's because women really make money or really make these purchasing decisions based on making men happy. I just think there's something really interesting about that. And I think it's a, it's really nice that the episode at least kind of moves into that like conclusion, or at least that pitch does, where they're sort of like, yeah, but that's not how we make money. And it, and it's sort of the episode reminding the, the viewer of that, you know, how that works. Indeed. Yeah, I would have to say that... Uh these characters will have to wait till the year 2000, the year of our Lord 2000, in order to figure out what women want. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, they'll have to learn it from somebody who uh, probably isn't the best uh, role model in that. Well, case. I mean, he didn't. You're talking about Mel Gibson. He didn't write the film. I know, I know. Or but he's in it. He is in it, undeniably. So I've never seen that film. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, I have seen What Women Want. Uh, I think we talked about it when we watched What Men Want on the Cinemaholics podcast. Oh, I didn't see that either. Subscribe so now. I didn't uh, review that film. I think you must have done that ah. separately. Yes, with uh, Bill Action. Yeah, there you um, go. Oh, that's a... I haven't talked about him That's a while. blast from the past, yeah. <laughs> um, also, uh, I wanted to denote this, that uh, it is interesting how we're seeing the difference in ads like starting to take shape in 1962. Because if you recall, even in this season, but also especially in 1960, the types of ads we saw, there, you remember like the WPA ads for Bethlehem Steel, the ads where it's like more drawn and everything, and it's not really photography. Now we're kind of seeing the more modern 60s advertising start to kind of take shape with this Playtex ad, right? Where it's a photograph and it's in black and white and it's it's a little bit more chic. And I think there is a reason, there there is a little bit of setup to this because what has Don Draper been doing over the last few episodes? Watching French films in black and white and obviously like getting more uh, rehearsed. Is that the right? Getting more versed? That's it. Getting versed in what is the cutting edge of the arts right now? Mm-hmm. He's always been kind of close to that world. Season one, it was more the Bohemians, right? The the hobo code and all that kind of showed that showed off his connection to that community. In this season, we're seeing a little bit more of like the the European sort of thing, and the, that sort of like chic, that sort of aesthetic. And I think there are some people who watch the show and are like, "Don's lazy. He goes to the movies." And yeah, he's lazy. But I do think. He's going to the movies, not just because he wants to watch movies. I think he does sort of view it as like, it's good for his soul. It's good for his creative soul. And he's willing to sort of waste time in that respect. Um, so, well, yeah. And also there's that episode in season one where they talk about like how pivotal it is for these guys to be attuned to pop culture and watch TV and stuff. I think that's kind of part of it, too, yeah. where he has to like he wants to kind of adapt to like what the future of cinema is looking like or what cinema is looking like for the present and like how that's going to inform how art's going to be dictated uh, in the contemporary way. Uh, that must be why he was he and Harry kind of get along in that respect, because Harry told him about the glass blowing paintings and he seemed to be impressed by that. But then also he was very quick to take on Harry's idea to pitch um, Belle Jolie right on the abortion thing, because I think it's like you said, Don does have that Kennedy mentality of like new, you know, the spirit of new, but he's in the, ne- the Nixon shell. It is interesting. One thing before I forget about this ad that I wanted to mention, since we kind of alluded to this before, is that we talk about how various characters kind of have like these two personas, like the the Nixon Kennedy or like these two identities, like Don, Dick, whatever. It's also kind of fun and fitting that like they picked one model to play both Jackie Kennedy and yeah, Marilyn yeah. Monroe. So that kind of like feeds into <laughs> their ad too. Yeah. 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 Mm. Nice. Um, and I love, I love the the little the little joke here where the guy says, sorry for the goose chase right after the camera shifts away from Tuck. <laughs> That's just that Matthew mm. Weiner touch, you know, where he just doesn't care. He, he will make the dumbest jokes and they land perfectly. I love it. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit too, where like Don doesn't lash out at duck and yeah, he just seems to have the mindset of like, yeah, just make the customer happy. But I did want to put it to you. If you had an alternate sort of read on that, do you think, do you think that he's just trying to be diplomatic with Duck for a different reason? Like, do you think he actually cares 
Or do you think, okay, maybe he just wants to keep Roger happy. He doesn't want another awkward lunch. You know, maybe he's just sort of like, I'm not going to pick a battle here. Right. Um, what, what did you have any sort of uh, reaction to like what that well, might be about? I mean, it was his idea to bring duck on, right? Like he kind of did that to skirt yes. away Pete taking that role. I think there's a part of him that like, you know, obviously he wants duck to see succeed as like a colleague and a friend, but also he's just like, I really don't want fucking Pete taking this I role. I don't think they're friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a part of him just like, I kind of just need you to work. I invested in you. I put my chips yeah, in, in the duck camp. I kind of just want this, you know, this, uh, this bet to pay off. And so I think there is a, a part of him that sympathizes with him. I, I, obviously, like we say, he's frustrated with him and he's not really kind of pulling his weight at the moment. And it could take a turn for the worse, given that he's uh, dipping into the booze again. But uh, that's yeah. that's that is an interest. That's why I find it interesting, more interesting that he doesn't turn to drinking after Don lashes out at him after a conflict. He turns to drinking, even though it seems like everything's fine. And I think that's way more interesting like that is the mark of a really good whiner screenplay where he knows how to get your how to subvert your expectations in that sense because duck is smart enough to know he's being handled and i think that he is like being assessed and so he turns to drinking as an escape from the cold reality that like yeah he's another failure it doesn't matter what don thinks or says or whatever he just he is going to turn to that because he just feels desperate in that moment um yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he shies away from the domestic life because it's like he, he can't really patch things up uh, home at home. So, like, work is all he really has. And it's, it's kind of an empty desire for him because, like, unlike these other characters, he can't really conflate the two in that way because it, it's just basically work for him. His home life's a disaster. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, he, he, he definitely has that yearning, that kind of emptiness that will be filled with a bottle. Well, and then we we get to the part where Peggy's still being excluded and and Ken and Ken says, like, I'm going to go tell Campbell, you know, and Peggy's standing right there, doesn't even think to go to her. And he says earlier in the episode where he's just like, oh, I won't let them do anything or like, you know, uh, and this is when like the the guys from Playtex are inviting them out and he purposely excludes Peggy. And I like how Peggy takes finally takes the advice that Bobby gave her in the last episode that Joan reiterated in this episode. Stop dressing like a little girl. Um, Stop trying to, like, be one of the guys. And so she shows up at this thing, dressed uh, to the nines. Yeah. Um, You're going to say? Well, I was going to say, also, she was kind of excluded from, by Ken, in a way. Like, I I think he kind of gave her more of an invitation, but she she knew she wouldn't really be invited in full. It's just kind of like, well, like, you're a copywriter, so you should kind of be here. But, like, it's kind of a guy's thing. Like, I don't know if you're going to fit in. And so that was another mm-hmm. kind of similar thing. But sorry, go keep keep going. And then, yeah, she shows up, she goes, and then we get we have a new look for Peggy Olsen. And she's looking great, in my opinion. That's all. Um, but yeah, uh, she does have that moment. She seems a little conflicted about what she's doing. And I was going to say, and this might be a classic example of Will overthinks this, um, but they're going to a burlesque show where the you know, the private uh, allure of like, you know, seeing a, a woman nude or partly yes. nude is uh, being shown. So it's like another example of like, you know, the private and personal are kind of intertwined. That It's, you know, they're paying for the seeing a private yet public display. We also have the moment where Don and uh, Bobby are getting it on. And I was kind of curious about this since the episode plays it up so much. 
is Bobby a Jackie? You know, is that what's going on here? Is it that Don saw her as a Marilyn, but then the whole kids thing kind of makes her a Jackie. So I think that's it, it, exactly correct. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause then she does the whole thing, right? She's like, I want the full Don Draper treatment. And he tells her to stop talking. He's like, I told you to stop talking, stop talking, blah, blah, blah. And then of course that gets paid off later with Sally. But then he does have that line where he's like, does it make you feel better to think I'm like you? And I think in that moment, it's, that's when it, it kind of clicks for him that the Jackie Marilyn thing applies to him and that he just can't seem to accept who he is, that he is two people, that he is unable to separate the two, and that the way he sort of puts women into a box, he's in that box right now. Um, there, there is something to that. like Because there's even the idea of like a, a man having a reputation for sleeping around that's something that he thinks is like with women. And it's like the Freudian thing, right? The Madonna or the whore. And he's sort of like, I'm the whore. I'm the man whore. And he is sort of in that moment being like, you know, he has to get out of there because I think it's hitting him that he's being seen that way. Um, and I don't think maybe it clicked for him as, like that or as that much uh, in the past. So I don't know if any of that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think the the Marilyn thing is kind of fascinating as far as um, Bobby's concerned, because it's something that came up uh, previously when she was uh, housebound and being watched over by Peggy. I don't know if we really talked about this, but she kind of is reading that magazine about Marilyn Monroe and she's kind of dismissive of her and just kind of like saying like, oh, like get it together, basically, you know, like, right, you know, and, and that's kind of the fascinating thing about and the tragic thing, obviously, with um, Marilyn Monroe is that she was made to be idealized uh, in this certain way and like kind of like this perfect female embodiment of like, you know, like the ultra sexual kind of mysterious but in a way that's like approachable and obviously uh, as has been a big talking point recently with the, the release of blonde is that like, she's, you know, was obviously a deeply, uh, you know, traumatized and, and, uh, harmed and, and emotionally fraught woman. And, you know, that the, her inability to kind of find comfort, uh, in men or with anybody for the most part is, is kind of a key to what makes her story so resonant. And that, you know, with, uh, Bobby here, like she's kind of, she feels this need to kind of, be defined by her sexuality throughout. Uh, you know, that was another kind of talking point when she was with Peggy is that like, she's kind of feels like she has to be this sort of sexual person, even though she is more than that. She's a mother and she's a wife and she's a businesswoman and she's self-dependent in many ways, but she's feels so much that her sexuality is defining. And she feels like she's kind of losing that grasp in the same way that Don is also kind of having insecurities about his age. As we see again, this episode and yeah, it just kind of makes him, I guess in that respect, kind of peas in the pod, but also, the thing that kind of pushes Dawn away from Bobby in this episode. I almost feel bad because it's like I said, this episode, I think there's so much, and this is one of our longest episodes we've ever done. But I mean, it, it ties into the last part of the episode, which to what you're saying, there's the whole thing where Sally comes over and she sits down as Dawn is shaving and she's like, Hey daddy. And he's like, Hey you, and this is, this is, I think, like one of the toughest scenes. I mean, it just, he's staring in the mirror and she says that thing, right? Of like, don't worry, I won't talk. I know, you know, I don't, she doesn't want to distract him. She doesn't want to say anything. So he doesn't uh, cut himself. And there are a lot of different ways to look at the scene. Probably for me, a lot of it is, yes, he sees his age. It's hard to get around that, you know, the, the way that the, you know, the beard kind of shows up. But I think there's another thing to this where 
he looks at Sally and Sally is looking at him and it, it's framed just like when Chauncey was staring at Duck. And it's it's almost like Don's been watching Mad Men. He watched the scene where Duck, you know, was tempted to to drink, uh, but Chauncey stopped him. I'm joking, obviously. But uh, I think this is a moment where Don realizes he's addicted. And I think he realizes that what he's addicted to is uh, not necessarily sex, but he's addicted to this, what sex gives him. Um, with these other women. And when Sally smiles at him, similar to the way that Chauncey smiles, it's a reminder of the fact that he's not who he pretends to be, that he's really this person with a reputation. And I think that when he sees his daughter, it just really hits him. I think that like that is what's giving him a panic attack. I don't think it's the whole, like, I'm. he looks it in the mirror and he's like, I'm Dick Whitman. I don't think it's that obtuse. I think it's way more him starting to realize that like his daughter is a human being and getting older. She is starting to behave in a way that is more like an adult. And that's how he's sort of, you know, we, we there've been moments throughout the season where he's cultivated that for her, you know, getting her to bring him cocktails and do all of that. And I think part of it is he doesn't really see her as an adult sometimes. And I think this is one of those moments where he does. And yeah, he, he can't, you know, he can't deal with it. Uh, Noel Murray said in uh, his AV Club review, I wrote this down, uh, unlike the women at the start of the episode, he can't look at himself in the mirror anymore. And I think there's something really apt about that. I think there's a direct comparison between the fact that Don, um, you know, doesn't have the strength to do the thing that like, you know, it seems so simple. It's, it's something that is so routine for the women at the beginning of the episode. But yeah, that's, that is my, my take on that ending scene. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very deliberate to kind of bookmark this episode on these two very private moments of uh, each character kind of getting ready about their day and like how the women just kind of like it's such a hassle for the women to put on these girder, girdles and these different, you know, attire, but they just kind of do yeah. it. And all guys and, have to do is shave. <laughs> right. And, and he just can't even really get himself to do that, at least that on that day. Um, but uh, another thing I, I noticed uh, and I kind of wanted to pick your brain about a little bit is that I feel like this episode more than others is one where we see Don like unclothed more often, not like we see him at the towel at the end and we see him, you know, shirtless and, and unclothed with the Bobby. And like, it, it seems like, you know, we so often are used to Don being kind of like dressed up and, you know, attired. And obviously when he's unclothed, it's in sort of private intimate moments, but it's this idea of like, Don can't really escape himself and that he's like in his own little way, it's just naked before himself and can't really wrestle with who that is. And he, even in these kind of intimate moments, he, He's still kind of caught with the idea that he's yeah these two things at once, but can't really nestle uh, with either. And yet he's just that person. And so, I don't know. I think that's an interesting touch. Uh, it's something I was thinking about while I was watching the episode. Uh, before we go to trivia, I had one last thing. Um, and this, this had more to do with uh, something else that Noel Murray said in his review that I thought was really interesting. Uh, it, he says, Pete's date the model had one of this week's most telling lines when she complained that agencies are always disappointed when they see models in the flesh after falling in love with their pictures, even though ultimately all they need is a picture. To me, that sums up what this episode is about even more than Don's scene with Betty. And I like that a lot because like, what's a mirror but a picture, you know? And and I think that it is a really nice like little touch that the that dialogue has. Very Mad Men thing, very Matthew Weiner thing to almost sort of hide that in the dialogue of a secondary tertiary 
character we may never see again, right? Um, I really like that that extra little little detail. So, uh, but yeah, we can go to trivia. We went pretty long on this one. <laughs> Mike's gonna be surprised. He's like, man, when I'm not around, y'all can't shut up. But um, that's how it is, I guess. Uh, but yeah, some trivia here. So as I was saying before, Matthew Weiner has said, and I should have said this before, he said that this is probably his favorite episode of the show. And I didn't say probably before, but he did say probably. Sorry. It's okay. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> uh, what The working title for this episode was High Flight. And so that's obviously a reference to when the, the broadcasting that was playing when Pete and the model were having their little tryst. Uh, it was ending the broadcast with the, I think, High Flight. It's like a poem that was written by a pilot during from the Royal Canadian Air Force. I don't remember all the details, but yeah, very famous poem. You know, it's like, and then I touched the face of God, all that stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, Matthew Weiner said he almost used the Infanta by the Decemberists for the episode Shoot in season one when Betty is shooting the pigeons. So he waited. He get, he had a little bit of patience, and uh, I think it paid off here. Yeah, I think it wouldn't have fit nearly as well in uh, season one. I also feel like people would probably be more critical of it if it was in season one because it's like, you know, yeah. it was Mad Men wasn't quite Mad Men yet, you know, at that time. So. The, uh, the country club scene, um, the indoor part of it, I guess they're always indoors, huh? Um, that was shot in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, uh, which is where Letters from Iwo Jima was shot. So that was huh. interesting. Or shot in the same room. Yeah. Good movie. Um, uh, not as good as, uh, or no, no, I'm, yeah, that's, you know, that's good. I was, I was thinking, I was going to get uh, it confused with Flag for Our Fathers, but Letters from Iwo Jima is a better one. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very different. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, huh, I don't remember there being like people like bombs, you know. Well, I mean, they're both. I mean, but... Eastwood, he made yeah, them yeah. the same year and all that. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Larry's from Iwo Jima is the better of the two. Fair enough. All right. Um, and Chauncey, uh, one of the breakout stars of Mad Men's spinoff show. <laughs> I'm not a Chauncey in hell. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was hoping the, the alternate title for this episode was Chauncey hits it big. And it's just, you see him, you know, Chauncey's amazing breakout yeah. role yeah. upon Chauncey's day off. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, just a backdoor pilot <laughs> for Chauncey and the, and the spinoff that, that AMC was going to set up for him. You know, if things didn't go so tragically for him, but then Disney came out with dog with a blog. And yeah, then, exactly. You know. you know, so how can we compete with this? You know, Chauncey doesn't have a blog, you know, it's all that. <laughs> um, anyway, so Chauncey was supposed to be in more scenes, which makes sense. They're going to do a backdoor pilot, uh, <laughs> but the production crew could not do it. Um, so for example, Chauncey was originally supposed to interrupt Don and Duck's meeting, which I think would have been really funny. Um, and also thematically it would have fit, but yeah. Oh, I mean, he was supposed to be in there. He was, it was his pitch. I mean, you know, <laughs> well no the, the meeting where don and duck are like uh know, you know, yeah. trying to patch things up yeah. Yeah, yeah um in the scene where don gets upset at betty for wearing the swimsuit uh bobby bobby draper not bobby barrett is walking around with a bucket on his head um because it wasn't the normal actor who plays him. so they just put a bucket on the head of some other kid oh yeah no i, I remember um uh kieran shepka i think mentioned that on uh andy uh cohen show that like they had like I think in total of like eight to 12 actors playing Bobby in that one time. Oh yeah. That's a whole thing. We last yeah. just, you wait, but, Bobby Draper, mm-hmm. you know, ro- you know, musical chairs yeah. <laughs> is uh, coming up. So. But uh, I think she even pointed this one out as far as like, there was one yeah. time where like they couldn't get, and they just put a bucket on a kid's head and, you know, it was like a funny <laughs> anecdote and stuff, but yeah, I, I yeah, guess yeah. that's this episode. Um, th- there was also that scene before where like they run up to, 
to Betty, like we said, and they're like, mommy, mommy. And like, you'll notice that like Kiernan Shipka is like hugging her mom and he, you don't, you don't see Bobby very well, but Kiernan is like kind of like staring ahead and you can kind of tell that she's just like holding there based on the direction. <laughs> and it's one of the few times that really like the show really breaks like from being a little bit more seamless. You can really see the sort of like, you can practically see like the, the stage, you know, lights above the scene at that point. Cause like literally she's just standing there and she's like looking around waiting for her cue. Um, who would have thought she'd go on to be one of our, our great actors of that generation, um, in my opinion. But anyway, um, and she's good. She's good at this point too, but I think that we're still sort of getting the Sally Draper that I don't think uh, will be remembered for the show in, in full effect. Although we did get premium Sally Draper content, Last week, if uh, I recall, was that last week or the week before where or, she's in the, in the oh, office? Oh, it was the three Sundays one. Yeah, I was gonna say it was a couple weeks before when she's making drinks in the office and boozing <laughs> and sitting around commenting <laughs> on uh, Joan's bosoms and all that. I mean, Joan can't get a break, you know. Like she's getting comments. <laughs> Not a from, great season for Joan. I mean, she yeah. got engaged, but uh, and then last year, um, the the song that was playing in the strip club, the Tom Tom club or whatever it is, is called how Mabel gets Sable cha cha cha. And this was almost going to be the theme song of the show. So instead of like, beautiful dream. Uh, yeah, it was going to be this. And, uh, I think they made the right decision because that's obviously one of the most iconic intro songs of like modern television. So, yeah, I know it's, it doesn't measure up to, for some people to, you know, you know, Wake, woke up this morning got myself a gun but uh you know there you go yep i would agree with that all right well i think that's it for this week's episode of Mad men sure. men good one um but yeah i guess you kind of came away from it liking the episode but respecting it more like in the aftermath um i i'm I mean, cer- certainly still like i i think it's a really really interesting episode it's not the most effective episode for like in the moment entertainment <laughs> but it is a thinker and uh, i definitely like it for that so yeah, I can see yeah. why Matthew Weiner likes it so much. Right. I mean, for me, I think I said it already, but uh, I, it's one that I think I enjoy talking about and thinking about more than I did actually watching it. But it's not mm. that's not to say that it's like a bad one to watch or that was like, you know, they, they did have fun watching. I just felt like it's right. so it's so much more interesting to kind of break it down thematically than to like kind of watch it play out. Next week, we're talking about the gold violin. So definitely hang with us then. Until then. We will see you on the next flight. High flight. High flight.